Hi there, and welcome to a special episode of the Dishcast. This time with the great and powerful, as Joe Rogan would say, Matt Taibbi. It's special not just because Matt's here and we really get into the down and dirty of the media, but it's special because for the first time, we're only going to give the first half of the podcast away for free. And we're going to keep the entire podcast, all of it, just for our paid subscribers as a way to thank them for subscribing for two years. I think after those two years, we've finally got a rhythm. I think my interviewing style has, insofar as I have any, improved. And we think we got enough momentum to actually ask people to pay for the whole thing. Still going to give it for free for the first 45 minutes, but we'd like to encourage you to help us by subscribing. How to do that? Well, halfway through today's chat, there'll be a break, a little musical break. And if you're a paid subscriber and you want to continue listening for the following 45 minutes, don't worry. You got it. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, to get the whole podcast. You could do it right now before you listen to the podcast. And if you do, nothing will change. You can just listen to the whole thing the way you normally do. If you haven't paid for a subscription and you're listening to all of these podcasts for free, just give us a chance. Subscribe and we'll give you the whole thing. You'll be able to hear all an hour and a half of the podcast just by going and getting a new subscription. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com and sign up. And in the process of signing up, you'll be given an option to add the entire podcast to your feed every week. It's still only a 50 bucks for the whole year. And you don't get just the full podcast with a membership. You also have access to the full dish every Friday with my weekly column, but also full reader discussion of last week's posts and importantly, discussion of what we talked about on the Dishcast itself. We also throw in a guide to the best in that week's Substack offering, mental health break video every time, and the full view from your window contest, which is, of course, addictive for those who are engaged in it. So that's what we're doing, shifting to giving the whole podcast just for our full paid subscribers, but still giving half of it away and encouraging the rest of you who aren't subscribing to do so. Thanks for listening every week, and please help independent media. Dishcasts often ask questions other MSM outlets won't. Tackle open and free debate with nothing forbidden and nothing kept off the table. Just subscribe. And thank you also for all of you who've been paying for this podcast for the last two years. We're really grateful, and we're delighted you're going to keep listening. And now, this week's Dishcast. It is with Matt Taibbi, fellow Substacker, fellow dissident, fellow wanderer in the media wilderness. We had a great time. Here it comes. Hi there. It's me again, feeling super healthy, which is wonderful. I'm just recovering from MLK weekend, which was also MAL weekend in DC, Mid-Atlantic Leather Fest. And I dropped by but couldn't get in because it was too cold. So I didn't get to see all these men selling harnesses, blindfolds, and various 
various elaborate contraptions involved in sexual activity, which I normally do because it's hilarious and I enjoy it and it's fun. And unfortunately, I did a whole bunch of mushrooms before I went this time thinking that'll be set me in the right mood. And then I'm waiting 45 minutes and it's freezing cold. And they tell me, oh, I'm sorry, we can't let anybody in today into the hotel at all. So there I am at 4.30 in the afternoon on Saturday, flying unbelievably high on mushrooms with nowhere to go. It's wow. January. So I ambled. Actually, I went to a, this is the truth, I cut my losses and went to this bar called the Green Lantern, thinking maybe maybe at 4.30 someone will be there. It was a big weekend. And it was a spanking party. <laughs> spanking party. Spanking. And it's it's not, you know, it's not what you, th- the thing, the trouble with the leather scene is that never quite as fun as you think it's just a bunch of people rather haplessly slapping each other yeah <laughs> it was not hot not hot i i cut my losses that was my weekend so it was quite spanked wonderful. on mushrooms it's pretty that, that that's you know i did not get spanked oh you didn't I, get I just, spanked okay. i did not you, i did you, not you, you, you there, perceived there was, spanking it was i watched people allegedly being spanked but it, it was kind of more like it, 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 it was not. It was not good. And, and it lasted about 10 minutes. And I, the, the co-check wasn't manned. It's always a bad idea when you have a spanking party. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. This is all TMI. I just want to say <laughs> that it. the person I'm talking to right now, our guest this week, who's also done his share of mushrooms, I think, over time, mm. is the great and powerful, as Joe Rogan always says. He always says that, right? That the great that? and powerful. It's like it's anyway, he is great and he is powerful. Matt Taibbi, a legendary investigative reporter in the gonzo tradition to some extent. A fucking brilliant writer is my main feeling about Matt. Likewise. Just turns a phrase well, he turns a phrase that is fucking memorable and uh, and and you you rarely forget it. He he had a long career with Rolling Stone, as you know, and he won the 2008 National Magazine Award for Columns and Commentary. God, how they gave that to you, I don't know. He's written best-selling books, including Griftopia and The Great Derangement, and his substack TK News, is rocking. And he's been up to his neck, as usual, in the controversy. He's been recently, we're going to talk about this, unpacking the secrets, tawdry, tedious, and or suspicious of the Twitter files before Elon Musk took it over. And thanks so much for being here, Matt. No, thanks for having me, Andrew. I appreciate it. I'm glad to oh. finally be talking tete a tete. It's, it's, uh, we it's haven't, cool. you know. It's funny. Yeah. They they think we're all in some conspiracy, but <laughs> I, I we've barely communicated in a couple of years. Right. Every now and again, right. we say hi, but and no, because but you, we, you you were one of the first sort of people to come over to Substack during that that big wave, right? I mean, yes, yeah. So that was when that when was did cool. you go to Substack? I, I had actually been there two years earlier. I, I, right, I, seri- I serialized a book there. So yeah, you were yeah, but ahead I did of the curve. But I I quit Rolling Stone probably about five months before you moved to to uh, twenty twenty was kind of a the turning point when yeah. the purge happened in all these media institutions, and so they then had all these refugees. It was mm. basically that I had been talking to them for a while before I made the leap knowing that I would probably have to make the leap soon, but I didn't think they'd be so egregious as to give me four days' notice. So I had something, an escape pod, and it's been a wonderful escape pod, as all the listeners to this podcast will know. 
it's been amazing ride the best time in my life yeah it's been fantastic i, I one of the other substackers says this 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 site of the greatest invention since penicillin which i kind of agree with so it's well certainly for a writer <laughs> who wants to actually say something that is not completely part of the current orthodoxy it's essential and successful anyway matt we always start these interviews with talking about people's childhood and how they grew up and you you grew up in a family of journalists your dad was a pretty famous journalist tell tell me about his tell me about your dad so my father first of all he was an orphan he was born in hawaii he's the son of a very young filipino woman in hawaii his father was a apparently a Chinese-American soldier, and he was adopted by an Italian family in New York. He grew up in New York. At a very young age, he met my mother, who's an Irish, Irish-American woman from, also from New York. They got married when they were 19. They had me when they were 20. He was already working as a reporter at the Home News, which is a, um, a newspaper in New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is where he worked to put himself through school at Rutgers. So after he graduated, we, we moved to uh, Massachusetts, and he took a job at a, a small ABC TV affiliate called WCVB. So my childhood was a lot like the movie Anchorman. I grew up around basically 70s TV. That was my childhood. You know, big big mic flags, bad facial hair, the whole thing. And uh, it was cool. You know, he, my, my father's an old school reporter. He's He's very much in the just the facts man mold. He's very proud of the fact that he only wrote one editorial his whole life and taught me a lot about business and to just, a, just a terrific natural reporter and a funny and that, guy. Well, that's the other thing. The one thing I remember, and I actually had a brief foray in Fleet Street, the idea that these people did not have a sense of humor or that these people were more moral than anybody else. The whole point of reporters is they were less moral than other people. They would make jokes about anything, that, that they, they were the most rowdy sort of anything goes culture you could find. But they did when they wrote their stories, stuck to what they thought was reality. And they were kind of, the fact that your dad was proud of never editorializing or only one, whereas Basically, well, let's not say this too generally, but so many reporters today want to turn every news story into an editorial. That's that's their that's their goal, and it's it's depressing. So, so your dad was kind of an inspiration. Yeah, although I mean, I, I never really wanted to be a reporter. I grew up wanting to be a, a fiction writer. My heroes growing up were novelists like Gogol. Believe it or not, you know, I I, I was very uh, evil and wall was another one. Saki, I, I named one of my kids after Saki, believe it or not. And oh. uh, and but it just t it turned out, uh, you know, that if, if there are 100 things you need to be a great fiction writer, I'm missing about seven of them. And uh, it just didn't work out. So I went into the, you know, the family business, which is what I knew. My father, I'd been around him my whole life. I knew how to do the job. And, uh, you know, obviously, I my career evolved in a different direction than his. And, and that was okay. Can you Because I had also idolized Hunter Thompson growing up. I mean, I, I was a big fan of his books. We used to, we used to read his books on road trips actually together. So I, I liked that kind of writing. And when I did get the opportunity to work at Rolling Stone, I mean, I was, I think 33 years old, maybe when they offered Rolling Stone asked me to be essentially their campaign reporter so, you know, it's one of the iconic jobs in journalism, and I was, it was tremendously exciting. It took a while, the hang of it, but 
you know, journalism at that time was was a, a great thing to be part of. It was fun. It allowed you to see the world and and you didn't really have to stick your nose in, into the politics of things that much if you didn't want to. Like the the requirement to be a public personality was not there in the same way it is now. Like everybody has to have a social media presence, right? You know this. So so that was it. That was the difference. I didn't I didn't want to be this, but but it's, it's not so bad as a consolation prize. But the, the Russian novelists seem to have had a particular attraction for you, and since you subsequently went to work in Russia. I'm curious, like, this, this is a strange thing for a kid growing up in, a, in the end of the Cold War, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you were, you to be fascinated by Russian existential crisis and literature. Unpack that for me a little bit. Like, where, what, what is it about those writers that you found inspiring? So my parents went through a, a really nasty divorce when I was around nine or 10. I had some problems. I was kind of a nerd. I, we had, we had moved a lot. So I had social problems in school and were all kinds of issues that I was going, dealing with. And I remember being handed by a teacher, I think when I was 13, there was a story by a writer named Mikhail Saltikov Shedrin called How a Mujik Fed to Officials. And if you look it up, it's one of the funniest things ever written. It's it's about these two bureaucrats who from St. Petersburg, these czarist bureaucrats who wake up on a deserted island and there's like food everywhere, like the rivers are teeming with fish. There's like partridges and, and you know, you know, quail everywhere. There's fruit hanging from the trees, but they're too stupid to find any of it or even catch any of it themselves. And then suddenly it dawns on them, oh, we just, we just needed to get a, a, a mujik, which is like a slave, basically, in Russian culture. And they go around a bush, they find one sleeping, and they start ordering him around to go catch the fish. And he does it. But the there's the Russian humor has this incredible absurdist quality, this like fatalistic, absurdist, extreme, like they don't go for subtle, the sort of subtle parlor humor that you might read. Although I love us like Oscar Wilde and that kind of those kinds of writers. It's not that in Russian literature. It's they, they go for the big belly laugh. And when I was a kid, that was a, that was a great escape for me, you know? And, and in fact, you know, Gogol, the writer, when I learned about him as a person, he also was like a severe depressive. He ended up starving himself to death. He had all, all kinds of problems, but he talked about how his way out was to think of the funniest things that he could imagine and put them down on paper. And I think that was a pretty common thing for people in that culture. It's very dark there. You know, people are, are you know, steeped in alcoholism and poverty and all kinds of things. And so I, I I was very attracted to that that way of thinking. I I loved the the prose styles. The stories were just so wild and inventive. I'm sure you've read like Master and Margarita. They're they're just beautiful books. Russia Russia obviously is a country with a lot of problems, but it's certainly you know from from a literary standpoint, it was it was a real escape for me. Just that whole world of kind of 19th century Russia was something I I, I imagined myself disappearing to when I was having problems as a kid. Huh. And your mom was Irish. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. There is, I know this is, a, this is a kind of slightly wacky theory of mine, but the bleakness of Irish thought oh, yeah. and literature has a lot in common with the bleakness of Russia. There's, there's I mean, my, all my, half my relatives are from the West Coast of Ireland. And I just imagine growing up looking at the Atlantic with its 
dark brooding it rains all the fucking time there's nothing to do nothing to except eat, <laughs> eat a dig peat and it's after a while if you don't have some sort of gothic understanding of the world if you don't have some bleak existential twist on everything you're gonna fucking go crazy it's it wasn't it wasn't a green and pleasant land like england with lots of nice little places to go and village. it was fucking brutal and absolutely uh, yeah yeah and i think the russians and the irish have a lot in common on the drinking front on the literature front i mean the Irish are, I would say, better poets, right? Yes. You know, and but the the Russians are are you know they they're great novelists. They've they've always had that tradition. It's it's a big part of the culture there, and people are very literate. Like I, I think, just like people in Scandinavia, all these places where there's no you know natural light and people don't run around outside all the time they could just just everybody reads that it's it's something yeah. that's really cool about the place and I, yeah. I think it's probably similar in ireland right i mean there's the everybody sings songs and writes poetry yeah it's otherwise you would go slowly mad i mm-hmm. think uh, and the climate does make a huge difference to the cultures of places it seems to me and it, you know when i when i studied political theory in, in grad school i was Aristotle and Plato, all these ancient, they would always have a chapter on the climate before they did it in the political science. I was like, what? <laughs> well, what has that got to do with it? And when you think about it more and more, you realize that, yeah, something emerges from collective living over generations in a place that's that dark and that, and that depressing. And, and of course, it can lead to absolutely marvelous things, as, as you said. So, so that bleakness and that, so eventually, so you have a kind of slightly troubled more than slightly troubled. Yeah, more than. I don't relate to this at all. I, I, I had the opposite. I re- responded by really? going completely inwards. I was a very well behaved. I was a. I was abs- I mean, the only thing I did that was truly rebellious was I. I, I did create a high school. One of my magazine, a, a sort of Samizdat magazine in my high school, which made fun of the headmaster and mm-hmm. and took apart all the basic things of the school and and got disciplined for it and so on and so forth. But that was my instinct with journalism. It was like. Let's fucking embarrass the headmaster. Uh, oh yeah. Let, let's let's do something with some scatological. Let's just shock a few people. And I also was editor of the the school magazine, official magazine, at the same time. So I was playing a double game here. But but I certainly enjoyed the the the, the vicious little little pamphlet we used to put out about. What was it called? Monsters. What was the name of the paper? It was called Libellus. Libellus, which is short from libellus, but it means little book. Then you can tell I was studying Latin at the time. It's the nice. most nerdy name, but it was. <laughs> It was it was good enough, and we had a good time. I um, like it. I like it. Yeah. yeah. But so how did you end up going to Russia? Because that's sort of the next big move in your life. Yeah. So uh, when I was in I was in college at, at Bard College, and at that point, I was so obsessed with this whole dream of being a novelist that I got it into my head that I wanted to learn Russian so that I could read these books in Russian. And... So I, I went in, I guess, my sophomore year, or maybe it was my junior year. And uh, I ended up <clears throat> kind of just coming home, finishing my, a few credits, and then moving right back for good. So I, I, went, I basically went to Russia for, to, for school in 1990, came back briefly, missed the revolution, and then moved, moved back right after the revolution and was there until 2002. And you were based in Moscow, Petersburg to start. Then Uzbekistan. I moved. I moved to Uzbekistan for a little while to get away, 
because I thought there'd be less competition with other freelancers. Then, then I moved to Moscow. Then I played pro basketball in Mongolia. Believe it or not, I, I just I want to I want to I want to I want. <laughs> you're reading along your 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 biography, and you're like, oh, and then he played uh, basketball in Mongolia. <laughs> Mongolia. What was that like? Were you taller than everybody, or or, or, or no. were you pretty tall out there? Well, Mongolia is not. There's not a whole lot of. T- of tall folk in Mongolia, but I'm not, I mean, I'm six, two and a half, maybe. Right. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No idea how tall you are. But yeah. That seems to be pretty tall for Mongolia. But, but, you know, certainly not tall enough to be, I mean, like I, basically I, I wasn't, I grew up playing basketball, but I was always like a forward when I was too short to be a forward in real school in America. So, but I heard, I I met a Mongolian guy playing pickup basketball at Moscow State University. And he told me about this league. He says, you know, we have this league, the NBA in Mongolia, the Mongolian Basketball Association. It has NBA rules with a 24 second clock and three point line and everything. And so I, I, at the time was working at the Moscow Times, kind of an expat paper and I went in the next day, quit, and said, I'm going to play pro ball in Mongolia. And the editor said, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. You know, if you stay here, you you, you could be lead correspondent in five years or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to do the pro basketball thing instead. And uh, hopped on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. And after five days, got to Ulaanbaatar, had a tryout, and and played for a season there got sick had to had to leave but it was it was an amazing time it, it was so, it was tons of fun <laughs> i'm just kind of in awe at being a young aspiring journalist and just deciding to go for six months or wherever long it was to play pro basketball i guess you i mean you certainly not there's, there's the one thing about your career is there's no element of piety in it. Right? <laughs> well, that's probably true. <laughs> it is impious in every degree, but the the way in which because the very act of saying, oh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna play basketball for a while in, in Mongolia, and who would do that except someone who really thought journalism is great fun, but hey, I could do other things. I want to see the wor- rest of the world a little bit more, and what could be more exotic in a way and interesting what do you learn in mongolia well what surprised you about it let's see what surprised me about it well it was was harder to learn mongolian than i thought the the the, the, the the language was very difficult they don't speak russian at all they do speak russian which was but 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 it was a bit of a problem because there was kind of a generation gap there like the Mm. older people people above like 22 spoke Russian and people under that didn't. And so that was kind of an issue. They, they, they give Russians a really good run for their money on the drinking front. Mongolian men, in my experience, if you, if you're really good friends with somebody, there's like a tradition they seem to have where you get drunk with them and then you have to have an actual real fight with them sometime during the night. So that took a little while to get used to. How Um, many fights did you get into? A few, I would say. How many did you win? None of them. I mean, you know. I mean, so your job was to be blooded, basically, yeah, in order exactly. to be initiated into the zone of friendship. It was, it was, it was, it was crazy because at the time uh, on the team, I was, I was trying to drum up support for the league, so I was like dyeing my hair like Dennis Rodman colors. I had like a yellow beard and everything, and and then I would show up at the court, you know, with this huge black eye, and all. it was, it was just very <laughs> funny. I mean, the, the whole, the whole thing was surreal. It sounds it. And as you covered Russia, you sort of saw 
chaos and meltdown in a way, in a way that much of the mainstream media was telling us this is a free market revolution and, and we're bringing democracy and individual freedom to Russia because that's what we do. And you were like, well, hold on a minute. <laughs> it's not quite that. What, what, first of all, what made you, what, what were the incidents that made you realize this thing is coming undone? And secondly, why do you think other people were not prepared to tell the truth about it when they, they looked, at, looked at it? So after I got back from Mongolia, you know, I got I got sick. I had to recuperate. I came back, and instead of going back to the to the Moscow Times, I started I sort of co-started a, a nightlife guide with this other writer, Mark Ames. And the the deal was basically he was the person who went out to clubs at night and got all the advertisers, and I filled the rest of the paper with with all the other stuff. So I was suddenly doing lots and lots of journalism of a type that I had never done before for the features one of the things that i would do is i would travel around the country and get jobs in places doing various things so i'd like work construction at a monastery or like work in an elephant cage in a zoo worked as a security guard i was a bricklayer for a while i did all this stuff and it would use all these sort of slice of life stories all around the country like as far away as siberia and you know as close as moscow obviously and so I was seeing up you know, up close what things were like in the country. And I, I didn't have a whole lot of political awareness at the time, but I started to notice that what I was seeing was just radically different from what was being reported by other people in what was a, a pretty insular expat community at the time. Everybody was writing home about this smooth tr transition to a free market economy, this the quote-unquote emerging middle class, which was a, a late motif that was in everybody's stories. But meanwhile, I was going to these villages and the only people who had actual money were pensioners. Like they would, they would get it in the mail. Everybody else was working in a barter economy. I mean, it was, they had an abject wealth gap. It was sort of like a parody of what America is now, right? There's like a few super rich people and just everybody else was completely busted. And no, that was the first time that I started to have this insight into hey, there's maybe there's something wrong with the meat because I just hadn't really given it a whole lot of thought until then. I can't think of any better way to understand a country than taking jobs that are not particularly pleasant or interesting or different than what you've done and just listening to people, being around people, observing little things that you realize in the end, that's all you can really – I mean, that's the first thing you do is you notice particularities and you note them and you see – eventually you try and create – some sort of pattern out of them, but it's a direct empirical observation question. Right. And, and those are the reporters, of course, I particularly like because they're not, they may end up with a particular conclusion, but in general, they show rather than tell. You just, you just, you have enough stories and incidents and, and quotes and, and people that you create the impression of something that's happening. And of course, Western elites in Russia and Western media in Russia have have not exactly had the best of relationships the last hundred years. Yeah. And the way that you could go there in the 30s and like see nothing wrong happening and, and no starvation in Ukraine and, and no unbelievable tyranny just shows you to what extent you can bring with you all sorts of assumptions from the US or whatever and just see what you want to see. And you, and you can basically outsource the reporting to fixers. This is what most of the people did. There was a compound 
on a street in Moscow called Kutuzovsky Prospect. And it was a, going back to the Soviet days. It was sort of a walled in area where a large proportion of the journalists who work for the major kind of news organizations like the Times, the Washington Post, Globe and Mail in Canada, like, you know, they, they all had their little place in there. And they would, if if they wanted to do a story about something that was happening in a city like Samara or Kamarova, they would just send somebody there to get a bunch of quotes. And then they would write the story in their office in Moscow. And so there's two, there's two things wrong with that. One is that you're not getting the firsthand impressions along the way, right? Which are always important, as, as you know, right? Like every story is kind of a, an amalgam of everything that you're seeing. But then also there's the, the language aspect. Like if you're, if you're not, if you can't speak the language well enough to catch all the subtleties of what people are saying, you're, you're going to miss a huge part of the story. And, and so you, you can basically pre-write the, the, the narrative. And, you know, I, this is a, a criti- critique I think we both share about current media that just happens more and more frequently now in media, not just overseas, but everywhere. People kind of come up with what their takes are and then they fill in the blanks from there, which is unfortunate. What I find interesting about that parallel is that you have this compound that is in a major city and they just, there are feelers out to various parts because they have to report on the whole thing, but they're not, they're increasingly unengaged in reality. They're not living or experiencing what's happening and they're interpreting it from a distance and of course the collapse of the of the local press in this country or of 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 major city newspapers the the way in which in the transition to online media the the newspapers essentially panicked and just hired as many young people who knew what they knew what this new medium was, all of whom tended to be from the Ivy League. Right. And so you you started to create this this exactly by accident or or to some extent design, but you created a, a kind of simulacrum of exactly what happened there, except in our own country. There's no one actually living in Chicago or living in Des Moines or living in San Antonio that can tell you, this is how it feels right now. This is, what's, this is what I see. Absolutely. There are some reports, like we had Nick Miroff on here recently, a fantastic reporter who just does exactly that. He goes there and says, well, fuck this. Like, he came up with this wonderful phrase, asylum theater. Mm-hmm. He saw like all these people coming and he just, he just told me, and so, and you know, it's easy to spot these people because as soon as you read their pieces, you learn something. Mm. As opposed to what? Then, yes, the other thing that happens because it seems to me that you are behaving with utter disregard to the opinions of your peers. Well, uh, yeah, that was partly fact, out of ignorance, though. I mean, I have to, to be to be perfectly honest, like I well, first yeah. ignorance and then knowledge. Let's put it <laughs> that way. You had two phases of ignoring your peers, but and they particularly there's a sort of Comment like expats. There's a community here, mm-hmm. and they're they're, as, they're more interested in some ways, or not more interested, but more concerned about the opinion of their peers than these invisible readers out there who 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 really are just the objects of their dispersal of knowledge. They're not actually thinking primarily. What does your average person not know about the subject that I can tell that person? It and, becomes what can I write that will give me prestige maybe some TV opportunities, but also a lot of cooing and praise from my fellows in the newsroom. Right. Yeah. And, and 
there was a divide between who their real audience was, which was their their peers and their superiors back at home, and a certain slice of the the readership for whatever newspaper they they wrote for, and those people were never going to be able to check the facts, right? Like they they weren't going to be able to you know independently go to some small provincial Russian city and see if that was actually true that everybody now had a VCR in their homes and was taking vacations in a pizza or whatever it was. So they didn't have to work very hard to, to give it verisimilitude. And, but I think that happens now with, you know, with America, right? You, you have the, the staffs for papers like the Washington post and New York times and they're reporting on you see this a lot in campaign reporting where you know they might be reporting on rural Wisconsin or you know some important state and you know their audience is, is a bunch of rich people in the tri-state area for the most part they're not going to be checking to see whether that story's you know true or not the people they're offending by getting it wrong are not going to affect them financially so that's that's kind of a flaw in the system is the, the way I see it. Like you, it, there's, there's gotta be a little bit of a price for getting stuff wrong. And unfortunately there isn't one usually. No, because your, your own fact checkers don't want to prove you wrong because they already agree with you. And so, and in fact, what you find with the fact checking process is what I found over time was that sure, we all need that. It's great. It's important. And show me where I'm wrong. But eventually, slowly it became this sort of, I would call it, it's just there was, there was sort of, no, this opinion is wrong. And if you put this fact in there, it could lead to people having a wrong opinion. And therefore, let's, is this fact totally defensible? Can we, and of course, every fact can have something challenged about it, but it got to be a war of total attrition that every single detail that violated a conventional narrative became the object of intense scrutiny as mm -hmm. if I was somehow and you then go through this process every week of everything you're writing you have to laboriously defend word by word sentence by sentence until as a writer you're just fuck this you just like I was trying to explain you cannot expect a writer to produce good work if they start if they start in a defensive crouch if yeah, they I'm start knowing they can't say this you can't say that you can't say that Absolutely. And if you know you're going to have to fight, you know, to the death, right, to to keep some sentence in the piece, there's going to be a part of your brain that just says, you know what, maybe I'll just skip that observation, right? Like, you, you're supposed to fight against that instinct when you're writing. But but you know this, you the, the fact-checking process can be so onerous, or at least it used to that subconsciously maybe you start you start looking for ways around it and that's that's when they start to win is when they they, they they grind you down a little bit you know i haven't been exactly in that position but i know i know how that works for sure well, my main concern was it was going to kill my writing right that i i i put out prose that was just turgid and 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 could be and this is the other worry is that you read so many writers across all these platforms they all sound exactly the fucking same that you you do not hear voice distinct clear voices that that you recognize trust or hate but know that they're real they're who they are they're, they're expressing their actual opinions and you can tell that i mean the difference between what matt iglesias used to write at vox and what he writes now is night and fucking day no one no one pointed that out in his profile is that he's finally recaptured his style as a writer because right. he's not constantly terrified of some motherfucking 
23-year-old, sorry, it no, comes out of occasionally, and telling him he's full of shit and that he's actually creating enormous psychological harm just by writing a sentence. When and how did this happen exactly to you? When, when did they drive style out of news writing? Yeah, when did, it, when did the fear of being offensive create this sort of soup of, of, of copy pasta, as it were? Yeah, that, um, that's a good question. Mixed, mixed metaphors. Yeah, I like that. I like this, uh, soup and pasta. You know, I, I I always think about the composition of newsrooms in like in my father's day versus what it was by the time I got there. Like as you as you mentioned, once upon a time, like a group of reporters in a room after work was a dangerous situation. Like they were going to be drunk and something bad was going to happen. Like that was who they were and that was part of a sort of a job requirement like they you, you were supposed to be an unruly defiant difficult personality that that tended to be something that went with the territory as a reporter but by the time i got there in the 80s and 90s it was a completely different group of people my theory on that is that it, journalism became sexy maybe because of all the president's men or, you know, other stories like that, you know, the killing fields, whatever it was. And you suddenly had all these Ivy League kids and they had a very different sensibility about what the job was than reporters used to have. Like, you know, I, I interned for a guy named Wayne Barrett, like a thousand other New York writers did. And Wayne was sort of a classic New York, New York City investigative reporter who just sort of wanted to you know, screw with people like he didn't he didn't just instinctively didn't like powerful people or people with money or whatever, not for any reason, but that's just who he was. And that was normal. But the people who came in in the 80s and 90s, suddenly they were more like they wanted to be behind the rope line. They wanted to hang out with aides to the Clintons and be invited to those parties. They were socially the same people as the people they were covering. And I I think that was the moment. I don't know how it happened, but I think that was the moment when the business got really screwed up. Because you what know. what social responsibility does a writer have? And this is something I've grappled with myself. So I'll give you a classic example. I wrote in '96. I wrote a piece saying when plagues end, and it was a meditation on what happens psychologically. And culturally, when something that was killing everyone suddenly isn't killing everyone, and actually you have to, you see this this massive shift. And I wrote it as it was happening. And I was told this was an unbelievably irresponsible, reckless, bad thing to do because oh. some people might infer that the crisis was over, therefore there might not be sufficient funding, or that some people may act recklessly in response to this news and get HIV who might otherwise have done so. and. And I was, my position was, this is happening. Right. It may have those consequences. I, I would like to tell people, for example, lots of people who don't even fucking know that these drugs are curing you. <laughs> they were, I saw people die for lack of these drugs and they were available. And also it was a, an amazing moment in, after 15 years of facing something that killed everyone, you were suddenly entering a new world. That struck me as a fascinating and interesting moment. Absolutely. I didn't care. If people want to make do what what they want to do with that article, fine. But I didn't feel I had to 
be taken to account for, especially when in the piece I specifically say, look, I'm not saying this is over. I'm not, I mean, did all the to be sure paragraphs. Right. But what do you think? I mean, do we? Oh, I we... totally agree with you. Yeah. yeah. And, and what's more, I think, you know, there's been like a formal effort to change that attitude. Uh, there were, there mm-hmm. was a very influential piece in the New York Times in 2016 in the summer by a guy named Jim Rutenberg. It was called Trump is Testing the Norms of Objectivity in Journalism. And basically the argument was that Trump was so bad that we had to throw out the way we do business as journalists and not just be true, but be true to, quote, history's judgment. So, like, I'm with you. Like, as a writer, you know, if, if it's true, it's good. Like it's, it's like, it's like being a comedian. If it makes somebody laugh, it, it's a good joke. You know what I mean? Like art doesn't lie. Comedy doesn't lie. Good journalism doesn't lie. Like if it's true, it's true. Right. And, and the whole theory of, I think how a free press works is that when people are given the truth and given good information, they will make more responsible decisions. Like you have to have trust in your audience that they're not, ki- they're not babies. They don't need to be led, led by the hand to make political decisions that they're able to, to, to grapple with difficult things. And I, I, my experience has always been that, that audiences are much more sophisticated than editors give them credit for. They're much smarter. They pick up on subtleties much more than people think. I mean, you must have heard during the 90s, right, during those, the era of Maxim and all those sort of magazines that came up that, oh, we can't do we can't do stories longer than 400 words anymore because, you know, cable and people don't have attention spans. So, you know, you can't write like that. But that turned out to be the opposite of the truth. Like magazines ended up doing much better and blogs ended up doing much better because they went into more depth. Right. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'd be interested. To yeah, hear your thoughts that was, yeah, no, that's my feeling, too, that, that I just I think maybe it's because I haven't internalized a sense of myself as some kind of important figure in the consciousness. I mean, I'm just a fucking writer and take it or leave it and like it or hate it. And I that's my responsibility. Mm-hmm. And but my responsibility is not to make better make America some gleaming paradise it is it there are limits to what a writer is supposed to do and now i'm different than you because i also i'm an editorial writer i'm a a legit like separate opinion writer i just write my opinion so so it's a little different there but i am but even there i never really i always felt like for example with gay marriage i'm gonna make my best case but people may not buy this in which case bummer but maybe eventually it'll work out. But I didn't have the sense that I was uh, on the quote-unquote right side of history. I was, I was just making arguments about what I thought were quite sensible ideas and couldn't give a shit about whether – well, I did – obviously, I wanted it to happen. Sure. I really did want it to happen. But it was not – that was – yeah. And it's hard to explain that. So I would constantly err and be interested in – the counter arguments. Like I wrote, did an anthology which had all the anti-gay marriage pieces in it because I thought I was brought up as a debater. I'm like, yeah, if you have a good p- point case, it will only be more obvious once you present other strong cases to the to the to, to the opposite aim. So I've never had a fear of that, and I think also I think underlying some of the stuff in the American media is actually they don't trust most people. 
They actually exactly. think they are dumb. They think they can't be trusted, that they have to be guided, that they have to be told what any incident means more generally. So even if some random incident like this, this, this crazy religious fundamentalist who went and, and killed those massage therapists in, was it Atlanta or about two years track. ago? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, he was clearly a fucked up fundamentalist who had hated himself for visiting prostitutes and then went and killed them. No, it had to be then the anti, the white supremacist anti-Asian forces are claiming another victim. And it's like, well, they might, but maybe he's just a fucking fucked up fundamentalist who's acting out. And we don't know yet. But right. it was a given that this was the case. A given. Yeah, and 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 this is this is one of the things that I think. Again, it's it's a huge difference between how the job is practiced now versus before. Like it used to be a, a big virtue to be willing to be su surprised by the answers to questions. You know, you go and interview a politician who you've been told is a complete dope and doesn't know anything, and then it, it turns the person turns out to be interesting or funny or or has a, a take on you know a, a policy that's surprisingly persuasive or something like that i mean like your mind has to be open to that and you have to do you have to repeat the process of clearing your head every single time you come to to do the job because you can't bring all these preconceived notions to to stories they don't really want you to do that now they what they want is this army of content producers who just kind of take the same basic framework of a narrative and plug in some different variables and add links you know i mean if you call somebody on the you, telephone ai could do it yeah AI absolutely it absolutely woke ai would be so easy it would take any story and immediately talk about the prevailing narrative the you know you you it, it's not hard to do i i was lucky enough to have my first editor mike kinsley i don't know whether you ever interacted with him, i didn't but i yeah mm -hmm. he, he would say things like write this now because you won't have the balls to write it in 10 years time because you'll be you'll be too aware of like your position and all the rest of it he he gave opportunities to young people precisely because we were crazy enough to pursue really interesting stories right and right. and wouldn't mind taking the blowback and then he would also say if you think you've gone too far you probably haven't gone far enough <laughs> that's a good one i like that every yeah. week was about was about challenging the readers about about making them what 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 right and you no know, that's not in itself a virtue the counterintuitive take that is 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 can become a trope and a rather lazy one if you're not careful but done right the world is full of surprises absolutely <laughs> and what is news for if it doesn't tell you a couple of fucking surprises i open the new york times and i know nothing in there is going to shock me today because all the news will be filtered through a device that will not allow me to so i know that any report on ukraine russia for example will will never possibly even enter any question of doubt about our strategy towards that region for example i just know it won't happen well it's even worse than that like where do you go to get an unfiltered recitation of what's happening in the war in, in Ukraine. Like, I, right. I don't know. Like I, I, I talk to people who've studied it for a long time. I talk to some historians. I talk, or you talk to someone like Bob, right? You talk, you try and get, like I had Ann Applebaum on, God help me. And then I, <laughs> <laughs> but then I had John Mearsheimer on. Like 
So that that helps. You 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 get a a person can hear the strength or weakness of each of those people's arguments and make their own minds up. Let me let me focus particularly on a moment which happened obviously in 2016 when this man Trump arrived mm. and and how the media responded. When I when I talk about the collapse of liberal democratic rule, I absolutely Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you, too, for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks for the whole year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's Dishcast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>